Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 5, Aeschylus, the Oresteia, Part 1. In the last episode, we looked at Aeschylus, his life as a poet and soldier, and his place as the inheritor of the tragedies that had gone before, as best we can, as there's little evidence of them, and his early play, The Persians. Towards the end of his life, just a few years before he died in exile, he produced his greatest surviving work, the Oresteia. It was my intention to discuss this trilogy in one episode, but I found the first play packed with interest and excitement both from a theatrical point of view and in its links to the broader context of Athenian society, so I have decided to devote a complete episode to it. We'll look at the later two plays in the trilogy in the next episode. Before we start, I'd like you to put yourself in the place of an audience member at the City Festival in 458 BCE. You've been out partying the night before, enjoying the festival atmosphere and the rowdy crowds in the city. Everywhere is packed with people. The trading season is well underway and you see groups of sailors and their masters who look both exotic and rough at the same time. Thanks to the wine consumed last night, it's hard to get up before dawn and make your way to the theatre. But you're not going to miss out on today for anything so you force yourself up. Your wife is always up early, as usual, and gives you some of yesterday's bread that was specially saved, and some fruit and water, and a small flask of wine. Maybe she's a bit grumpy, because she'd like to go and see the plays too, but you both know that that's not the way things work. Anyway, she'll be busy with the children soon, and getting to the bakehouse for today's bread, and you'll be out for more partying tonight as part of the festival, so you'll make it up to her. She'll be okay. It's a stiff walk up to the theatre from the town in the cool morning air, and although it's still dark, the streets are full of men all heading with you in the same direction. The fresh air wakes you up. You bump into friends and chat as you make your way. There's real excitement in the air. Word has got out that Aeschylus has come up with a good one, and rehearsals have gone well. When you get to the theatre, you hurry in, seeing that the place is already filling up. You stride up the hill away from the orchestra as quickly as you can, passing the stone seats and heading for the wooden benches higher up. You pause for breath, it's a steep climb, and spot a couple of empty places. You sit down with a friend. The stone seats must be cold and damp with morning dew, so the wooden benches are better, but you know you'll have a square backside by lunchtime. It's only then that you notice the improvements to the theatre. The orchestra floor looks more solid than last year, and, most impressive, is the new skinny. A stone-built front has replaced the old hut that used to be there. Centre stage are a pair of huge wooden doors. Very impressive. In the less than half light, you take it in as best as you can. The breeze blowing off the sea makes it chilly and you look forward to the sunrise. You consider a swig of wine but decide to leave that for later and go for the water instead and wash down a mouthful or two of bread. As the first hint of daylight shows, you scan the orchestra and then the stage for any hint of action. Nothing. But then something catches your eye. There's movement on the roof of the skine. Someone's up there. He's rising up from a crouch. By the gods, it's an actor. You can just make out his mask in the half-light. He's going to speak. I pray the gods to quit me of my toils, to close the watch I keep this live-long year. 
for as a watchdog lying, not at rest, propped on one arm, upon the palace roof of the Atreides' house, too well I know the starry conclave of the midnight sky, too well the splendours of the firmament, the lords of light whose kindly aspect shows what time they set or climb, the sky in turn, the year's divisions bringing frost or fire. Such issue holds in hope she in whose woman's breast beats heart of man. I hope that this little speculative piece gives you an idea of what arriving at the Theatre of Dionysus and the power of the opening of Agamemnon might have been like. It's likely that when the audience entered the theatre, it was the first time that they saw the new stone-built skene, replacing the earlier hut or tent. Aeschylus certainly puts the roof space to good use, placing his watchman there. The audience may not have realised it then, but the watchman is also the third actor in the play, not the protagonist or the antagonist, and another new feature to an Aeschylus play, copying a development recently introduced by Sophocles. The watchman is waiting for sight of the beacon chain that will announce the fall of Troy and the return of King Agamemnon. So, within ten lines of the opening, the audience knows where we are in the Homeric epic and we're set for the ride. We assume that this was all time to coincide with the rising sun, so that while the watchman tells how he has learnt the patterns of the stars during his year-long wait, they are still visible and slowly fading as the sun rises. Unfortunately, we do not have any contemporary stage directions to confirm this. But this is not just a neat image. This is the first premise of the play, and perhaps it would have resonated with most of the audience, because they know the stories so well. The stars represent the natural order of things, as defined by the gods, and Aeschylus is saying, what follows is what happens when the natural order is broken. By this point in the story, which is one of the central homecoming narratives in the Homeric epic, there is a complex backstory. The house of Atreus is cursed by past actions. Uh, For the moment, let's just say it involved the slaughter of children and serving them to their father as a meal. And in the more recent past, Agamemnon has sacrificed his daughter, Iphigenia, on the command of the gods via a seer, to ensure safe passage of the fleet to Troy. Iphigenia and her mother Clytemnestra were tricked into coming to Agamemnon on the promise of a marriage for the daughter, and through the subsequent ten years of the Trojan War, Clytemnestra has been brooding on her revenge for the deceit and the crime. It's worth noting that although we call the play Agamemnon, we don't know what name, if any, it was given at the time. It could very justifiably be called Clytemnestra or even Cassandra. This is a very female-centric play, where Agamemnon has fewer lines than both of the female characters. Aeschylus addresses one of his common themes, the tension between male and female. Troy town is taken. Such issue holds in hope she in whose woman's breast beats the heart of man. The idea that Clytemnestra behaves like a man is repeated often throughout the play. She's been in control of the house and the estates in Agamemnon's lengthy absence and therefore become, in Athenian eyes, manly. Perhaps the all-male audience had an early inkling of how this was going to go just from that line. Their male-centric view of the world was about to be challenged. The watchman spots the long-awaited beacon and he hurries off to inform the Queen as the chorus enter playing the role of elders of the town. They fill in the backstory of the House of Atreus, but they're very disjointed and the story is told in unrelated segments. It's almost impressionistic, probably enough to remind the knowledgeable audience, but it gives the impression of the city as leaderless, 
the citizens lost without their king present. But the section reminding us of the sacrifice of Iphigenia stands out. Aeschylus doesn't want us to forget the manner of her death. The imagery used while telling of her sacrifice recalls the wedding ceremony, but it's perverted by her father, who is acting willfully and without consultation, driven by his own ambition to the point of the act of filicide. He is a king, we are constantly reminded, an autocrat, and in this case, acting as a god, deciding between his daughter's life and death. The comparison with Athenian democracy is not explicit yet, but it will be. For now, it hangs in the air. The Choral Ode also reminds the audience of the importance of the Trojan War in Greek history. It's the only time when all the city-states came together to fight a common enemy, and that enemy had to be defeated because by taking Helen away, Paris had broken the bond of hospitality that Menelaus had extended to him. The concept of freely given hospitality was an absolutely central idea in Greek life. The chorus don't even discuss if Helen wanted to go with Paris or not. To the Greek mind, that's not the point. The dishonour of the removal of Helen leads to the need for war. The need for war leads to a need for a god-appeasing sacrifice. An animal would be the norm, but Agamemnon decides that a more significant offering is needed, and so to the sacrifice of his own daughter. His decision to put the needs of the state before the needs of the family is a common theme in Greek tragedy, reflecting the political discussion that was going on in Athens at the time. This developing democracy was asking citizens to put the state before the family in their civic and political lives. This was causing tension between factions in the city who were arguing out exactly how a democracy should function. No doubt it was a classic political struggle with self-interest playing its part as those who saw their power waning in the rise of democracy tried to hold on to it. From the play's perspective, the message is clear. Don't think of going back to autocratic rule. There is a better way, whatever the challenge is. The chorus conclude by moralising over the horrific past events that have beset the family and expressing the hope that, quote, only may good come from this evil flower. The air is heavy with foreboding. Throughout the ode, the chorus have been calling for Clytemnestra, and eventually she comes out of the palace. When she does so, it's through the upstage doors in the centre of the skene, possibly the first time they had been used. Previously, we've heard how the cast of Greek plays was made up of the chorus and up to three actors. But we should remember that there was also a cast of extras, non-speaking parts to make up crowds of soldiers, slaves and others. In this case, Clytemnestra was probably accompanied by handmaidens and servants. Later scenes in the play must have involved these extras playing the entourage of some characters or to show the tension between soldiers and townspeople, for example. There may also have been props used, some of them quite large. Later in the play, we will come to a silken carpet and a chariot. I think it's important to remember that there was a big element of spectacle in the presentation of these plays. Including the use of an impressive prop, especially one that hadn't been seen before, might have been a tool to impress the audience and therefore the judges. They were, let's not forget, in competition. The chorus leader presses her for more details and proof, so she launches into a listing of the places where, beacon to beacon, the message travelled from Troy, quickly bringing the news of victory. Saying a listing does the passage an injustice. It's lyrical and a fine feat of theatre of the imagination. To give you a flavour, the opening lines are...
For Midas top, Hephaestus, lord of fire, sent forth his sign, and on and ever on, beacon to beacon, sped the courier flame. From Ida to the crag that Hermes loves of Lemos, thence unto the steep sublime of Athos, throne of Zeus, the broad blaze flared. Thence raised aloft to shoot across the sea, the moving light rejoicing in its strength, sped from pyre to pine, and urged its way in golden glory, like some strange new sun. Onward, and reached Machistus' waiting height, there, with no dull delay or heedless sleep, the watcher sped the tidings on in turn. Until the guard upon Mesopeus' peak saw that far flame gleam on Euripus' tide and from the high-piled heap of withered firs lit the new sign and blade the message on. With traders in the audience, some will have been able to follow the path of the beacon chain and imagined the very sights of each. For the less educated, it speaks of exotic places. Scholars haven't been able to agree on the actual site of every beacon mentioned, but it seems likely that it is both a geographically plausible feat, such beacon chains were used to warn of Persian attacks on the Greek mainland, but also significant to the theme of the play. Of the sites we can identify, each one refers to a myth where harm has been done to men by women. The beacon chain arriving in Argos is the signal for sacrifice and prayer across the city, all organised by Clytemnestra. It's less than 40 lines of poetry and dominates this part of the play, perhaps making the male audience feel quite uncomfortable, maybe even anxious. Clytemnestra prays that the returning army will spare the shrines of Ilion. Remember the hatred of the Persians for the destruction of the Athenian shrines in Aeschylus's earlier play. The Greeks are the good guys. They wouldn't behave so disrespectfully. She returns to the palace, and the chorus still question the veracity of her news. Their ode covers a lapse of time in the narrative. Not all Greek plays adhered to the unity of time that Aristotle was to espouse a hundred years or so later. A messenger arrives, kisses the ground of his home, and gives a lengthy and also timeless description of the hardships of battle and the joy of the soldier returning home. This extract is from the middle of the speech. "'Tis true, fate smiles at last." Throughout our toil these many years, some chances issued fair, and some, I wot, were chequered with a curse. But who on earth hath won the bliss of heaven through time's whole tenor and unbroken wheel? I could a tale unfold of toiling oars, ill rest, scant landings on a rock-strewn shore, all pains, all sorrow for our daily doom, and worse and hatefuler, our woes on land. For where we crouched, close by the foreshore's wall, the river plain was ever dark with dews. Dropped from the sky, excluded from the earth, a curse that clung upon our sodden garb, and hair as horrent as a wild beast's fell. Why tell the woes of winter, when the birds lay stark and stiff, so stern was Ida's snow? Or summer's scorch, where time the stirless wave shrank its sleep beneath the moonday sun. Why mourn old woes? Their pain has passed away, and passed away from those who fell, all care for evermore to rise and live again. It's another point where Aeschylus can speak from personal experience. Clytemnestra returns. Her unmotivated entrances and exits have been seen as problematic by some. However, they do serve to enhance the idea of the passage of time and perhaps speak to her unsettled state. But most of all, we have to remember that this is a dramatic form that does not attempt naturalism. 
far from it, in fact, and the portrayal is of mythic, semi-historic characters, whose every motivation is not always clear. In defence of their earlier criticism of her, as a woman and at the veracity of her news, she pronounces that Agamemnon will soon arrive and she awaits him eagerly. Both chorus and audience are again well aware of the irony. As she departs again, the chorus tell of the return voyage of the Greek army that was almost destroyed by a huge storm, more strong poetry, but also an image of vengeful gods watching over events. With more moralising and expression of how the sins of the fathers are carried to their sons and grandsons, the chorus builds towards the entrance of Agamemnon. The degree to which these long odes were accompanied by movement is something we'll probably never know for sure, but given the strong beat of many of the rhythmic metres used, the presence of musical instruments and the strong visual impact of unified movement in the orchestra, it seems safe to suppose that there was choreographed movement of some sort. Finally, Agamemnon and his entourage arrive. He's in a golden chariot, followed by soldiers, slaves and the booty of war. The image immediately speaks of wealth and power, all centred on him. He also has his lover, Cassandra, with him. Cassandra is both blessed and cursed. She tried to trick the god Apollo, and in revenge he gave her the power of foresight, but it is prophecy that will never be believed by others. The chorus praise Agamemnon, lament his absence, and warn him in a veiled way of what is about to come. He accepts the praise and homage, seeing it as his due, and seemingly forgetful of the terrible price that has been paid in this long war. Clytemnestra returns to greet him, but can't keep a touch of reproach out of her welcoming speech. It's the first time she seems not quite in control and uncertain of how to handle her husband. There's tension between the couple here. Clytemnestra has a strong position on the stage, taking the upstage position looking down on the orchestra, while Agamemnon has the ostentatious entourage and more obvious power. But he has postponed his arrival and now shows some timidity towards his wife. It makes him appear of weak character, not behaviour expected of a good king. She tells him that their son Orestes has left the city, which has become restless. In fact, the audience already knows she is lying. Orestes was threatened by his father's cousin, who is also Clytemnestra's lover, Aegisthus. She concludes in more complimentary terms towards her husband, and, presumably at her command, with a wave of an arm, her handmaidens stretch out a fine carpet for Agamemnon to approach the palace on. Older traditions call this a purple carpet, fit for a king for sure, but later thinking is that crimson is a better translation. Still a regal colour, it's more fitting for this blood-soaked family drama. The king hesitates, sensing some motive. This type of praise is excessive to Greek ears, belonging to more exotic Eastern potentates who considered themselves semi-divine. Audience members could well be murmuring it all looks a, a bit Persian to them, and not in a good way. Accepting this praise is immoral to a Greek, but with a bit of persuasion by Clytemnestra as she appeals to his overbearing pride, Agamemnon steps onto the carpet, and from that moment onwards everyone knows that his fate is sealed. As he moves forward, they exchange lines at rapid-fire crossed purpose, and the central opposition of these two main characters is laid bare. One has to say that Clytemnestra, this woman with a man's heart, comes out looking the stronger than the king. As he slowly makes his way to the palace, represented by the central doors of the Skene, Agamemnon 
again excuses or explains away any of his faults or wrongful actions. Finally, they pass into the palace and the doors shut behind them. Cassandra is left on stage with the chorus, who misunderstand her prophecies as she becomes more and more fearful for her own fate. Several times Clytemnestra returns and tries to persuade Cassandra to come into the palace, but she resists, continuing to recite prophecies that become more and more clear, until she describes Agamemnon's fate almost exactly. She also makes mention of the Eumenides, her witnesses. These are the Furies, terrifying winged creatures who pursue the guilty. Born of blood dropped by Kronos, the youngest of the Titans and father of Zeus, they represent the old world of autocratic justice and will play a major role in the subsequent plays on the trilogy. The repeating mystic prophecies are very lengthy, suggesting that mystical elements like these were popular with the Greek audience. Think back to the ghost of Darius in The Persians. For those of us used to only spending two or three hours in the theatre, a bit of cutting seems appropriate here, but the original audience were there for the whole day, so maybe not such an issue for them. Eventually, Cassandra is resigned to her fate and enters the palace and immediately we hear Agamemnon's cry for help. The chorus cannot agree if they should stay or flee, but as they debate in confusion, the doors are thrown open and the echoclaim, the wheeled platform, is pushed out to reveal the tableau of Clytemnestra, blood-soaked axe in hand, standing over the bodies of her husband and his lover. This is a significant change made by Aeschylus. In the original myth, it's Aegisthus who commits the murder. He is Clytemnestra's lover, but also entwined with the backstory. Remember the father who was fed his own children in a meal? That was Thyestes, brother of Atreus, the father of Agamemnon, and rival for the Mycenaean throne. It was Atreus who cooked the children, and having lost out on the throne and digested his children, Thyestes went to the oracle to divine the best method for revenge. He was advised to father a son with his daughter Pelopia. The son, the prophecy said, would kill Atreus. Thyestes raped his daughter, and Augustus was the result. In time, he carries out the foretold murder, so there is extremely bad blood between Agamemnon and Aegisthus even before he paired up with Clytemnestra. And here, I think we just have to pause for a moment and wonder at the dark, dark hearts that created these tales. So, Aeschylus puts the women unequivocally in charge and with the power here. The composed tableau is undoubtedly a shocking image, all the more so because it's clearly the woman who has committed the savage murders. Some commentators have argued that this and the crimson carpet are image of female menstruation that would have been deeply uncomfortable for the male audience to see. Men were used to fighting wars, seeing blood and hacked limbs and the associated brutality, but when they came home they could be at the mercy of their wives. Being stabbed in your sleep by an angry wife was a dishonourable death for the soldier citizen. I'm not sure we can extrapolate the image quite that far, but it's true that the fear of the power of women is a theme that is present throughout antiquity, so I put it out there for your consideration. Clytemnestra erupts into a passionate outburst, holding the chorus until Aegisthus arrives. She describes the murder in grisly detail, and is contemptuous of both Agamemnon and Cassandra, but the chorus will not condone the extrajudicial killing. 
She is a powerful and also somehow sympathetic character as she argues with the male chorus who refuse her command to disperse. Does the fact that her husband killed her daughter and then turned up with his new girlfriend in tow not gain her some sympathy? Perhaps, but not enough to justify bloody murder. In fact, some commentators see her as a prototype for Lady Macbeth. Scheming and ruthless, yes, but driven by events she did not create. It's a stretch, perhaps, but just one of the ways this trilogy has resounded down the ages. Aegisthus enters with an armed retinue and there's a standoff with the angry townspeople. Insults are hurled at Aegisthus as he tries to justify his role in the murders and his claim to the throne. He has a revenge motive too. One can imagine the factions facing off across the orchestra. There's real tension here as the chorus taunted Aegisthus for getting a woman to do his dirty work. Enraged, Aegisthus warns that he will be a harsh king if they resist him. That fraudful force was woman's very part, not mine, whom deep suspicion from of old would have debarred. Now, by this treasure's aid, my purpose holds to rule the citizens. But whoso will not bear my guiding hand, him from his corn-fed mantle I will drive, not as a trace horse lightly bridled, but in the shafts with heaviest harness bound. Famine, the grim mate of Dungeon Dark, shall look on him and shall behold him tame. A full-on fight there and then seems inevitable until Clytemnestra gathers herself and pleads for calm. She literally begs for peace. Her bloodlust is spent. She says, Nay, enough, enough, my champion. We will smite and slay no more. Already we have reaped enough the harvest field of guilt. Enough of wrong and murder. Let no other blood be spilt. Peace, old men, and pass away unto the homes by fate decreed. Lest ill valour meet our vengeance. "'Twas a necessary deed. The audience, of course, knows that we have another two parts of this trilogy to come. But as this play ends with the murderous couple entering the palace, the great doors swinging shut behind them, it seems that they have succeeded in their revenge ambitions. Although Clytemnestra's last pleas are truly heartfelt, everyone watching must have known that this was not how any cycle of revenge ends. So the chorus and extras exit and the audience relaxes for a moment. Agamemnon is the standout play of the trilogy and I think that remains so today because it contains many features that are still considered great theatre. One can see the beginnings of real characterisation, especially in Clytemnestra and Cassandra. There's a personal conflict between the royal couple, driven both by mutual distrust, even hatred, that speaks to the broader social and political issues of how to govern and how to issue justice fairly. There are clever and innovative theatrical devices to grab the attention and surprise the audience. The Watchman, the Crimson Carpet, the entrance of Agamemnon, the standoff between the Chorus and Aegisthus are truly theatrical moments. Some commentary has suggested that the play is the transition point between drama being primarily a religious ceremony to becoming a secular entertainment. Looking back, we like to pin particular moments in history, and in reality, the change was slowly made over many years, poets and plays. But Agamemnon does seem to catch or represent a moment of change in Athenian society that still influences the way we live today. So we'll leave the Athenians stretching their legs as they reflect on Agamemnon, and await the second and third part of the trilogy. Next time, we'll look at part two, the libation bearers, and part three, the Eumenides. I look forward to your company next time. 
But if you have any comments or concerns, in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter on at thoetp. Thank you.